0: did all of the electricians go? That's today's big question. And my guest is leading journalist Emily Pontecorvo. Until recently, Emily was an energy, environment, and climate reporter at Grist, uh, one of our favorite publications. She's now moved on to the new climate newsroom, Heatmap. Um, Emily has covered the whole enchilada, from green hydrogen subsidies to coal ash, scope 3 emissions, um, f- fashion week, airports, locusts. Uh, Frequent flyers, college divestment movements, carbon removal, you name it. And so when Emily did a deep dive on the workers, subsidies, and training schools behind America's electricians, or lack thereof, I knew she was the perfect person to help me, and therefore you, understand where we go from here. Because we need a lot of electricians to electrify everything, and the problem is we're short a lot of them, with the most experienced among them set to retire soon. It's complicated, it's systemic, as they say, and it's holding us back. So I need to, and you need to understand what the bottlenecks are when you can't find an electrician. We've all been there. And how we can market to future electricians to then educate them, to train them, and to support them as a new generation of truly essential workers. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, if you're new here, and this is Science for people who give a shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Uh, Along the way, we will discover tips, strategies, stories you can use to get involved to build movements and industries like this, to become more effective, for yourself uh, to improve our world around us. Please let me know your perspective on today's conversation with Emily. And as always, you can send recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Emily, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, Hopefully you won't regret it by the end. Emily, we'd like to start with one question to kind of set the tone for this nonsense, because what we talk about here is important and serious, but, you know, we, we should have some fun with it, because nobody likes talking about climate change for an hour, it's very sad. Emily, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold and honest. And I've asked 154 guests that, so, you know, <laughs> it's a high bar.
1: Wow, um, what a question, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. God. I can't claim to be vital to the survival of the species, but um, I suppose I'm doing a very, very small part in a much larger, important task. I think that climate journalism is is just extremely important to making sure that we kind of get things right. I think we're at a point where climate journalism is no longer about kind of Getting the word out about climate change and helping people understand like what's happening to the planet. And it's more about helping people hold politicians accountable and companies accountable to actually doing something about it and making sure that the path that we choose to address climate change is equitable and actually makes the world a better place and not a worse one and doesn't kind of perpetuate a lot of the inequities we see today. So that's really where I, I see my role as a journalist is to look at what's happening in technology and business and the economy and in, in politics and how people across all those different fields are trying to address climate change and, and trying to understand, you know, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the sort of tensions in this big transition that we're in now?
0: I appreciate that perspective. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it much. I read an article recently. Time is a flat circle. I can't remember anything. I don't remember where it was or who she was talking to. But you're aware of uh, Dr. Kate Marvel, who was at NASA for a long time. And it is not only an incredible atmospheric scientist, but just one of the most eloquent, impactful writers out there. And she gave us typically like candid quote conversation where she was just like, it's great. Nobody asks me for questions anymore because, like, we get it. (laughs) You know, It's like no one's going like, but what does the science say? It's like, look outside, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I read that, too. That's in the new um, outlet Heat Map. Heat Map. That's it. Yeah, Yeah, Heat
0: Map. Very exciting. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. You know, it was kind of like, my job is done here. The job is not done, but, like, that version of it, which felt like it was – gonna be here for for so long is not the case you know now you just sound like a moron if you're ignoring it right but you're right it's now it's like okay how are we gonna do this because that is has to be really managed in a proactive comprehensive and in- inclusive way but also with the self-awareness that you know per this conversation and and your work uh, you know we were playing with a couple hands behind our back much of the time here Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or INI, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from All kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game member-sourced action steps twice monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world virtual events and of course the membership slack channel look so many people come to us asking what can i do and we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer but the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com, and if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top, if you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. So I want to give folks some context for our discussion. And correct me everywhere I'm wrong, that's the story of my life, but per your article and our partners over at Rewiring America, we've been running this whole series with them about home electrification. They estimate that, uh, I think it's like 60 to 70% single family homes in in the US are gonna need to upgrade, people call it different things, your electrical panel or your fuse box or whatever to accommodate all these things we can electrify. And that's a lot, it's expensive. It's more complicated than just simply swapping these things out. That's just the brains of the operation before we get into all these different pieces of the puzzle that we've been talking about a lot here. But in pre-article, again, in California, at least, that's one certified electrician for every 478 housing units. That's the existing ones. And by some estimates, we need to build like 4 million new homes in the U.S. So we have an enormous amount of work to do. And we get to do, as I would say to my children, not we have to do, we get to do. And we don't have a lot of folks to do it. Am I off base there? Again, I want to paint the picture for folks before we get into the whys and the hows.
1: You've gotten to the heart of it. Basically, about a year ago, I started looking into the shortage of trades workers in the country. I feel like it's a little bit cliche. Like people sort of have talked about this for years that like, oh, people don't go into the trades anymore. We don't have enough trades workers. And I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit and figure out like, what does that actually look like on the ground? What does that look like for homeowners who need work done on their homes, for contractors who are trying to hire people to get work done? And then I, I kind of zoomed in on California because it's this place where a lot of the clean energy work that needs to happen to cut emissions, like electrifying homes and building renewable energy, they're a decade ahead of everyone else. It's they've been working on it a lot longer. And the hypothesis was sort of that if demand had sort of increased anywhere, it would have been there, <laughs> um, sure. and specifically in in the Bay Area. And yeah, I think you know what I found was that it's. No matter, everyone that you talk to pretty much agrees that the kind of a number of, like, I was specifically looking at electricians, although I think the case holds for HVAC installers and plumbers and other, other types of trades workers. But, you know, no matter who you talk to, people are like, I couldn't find an electrician or I can't hire any workers. And like you said, you know, we were able to kind of dig up some of these data points about how many there are uh, out there for for the population that exists. And it's it's just pretty striking.
0: It's obviously complicated, and we're going to get into that. But it's it obviously speaks to, we do this funny thing in this country where we build things and then we're just like, that's done. And then we don't fix our pipes or our bridges or airports or anything like that. We saw, you know, uh, just this week, they finally, I think you'd spend some time in New York City or, or live there, but LaGuardia went from truly like one of the Worst experiences someone could have for flying to—it's really nice. And then this week they're like, "Yeah, but we're not going to build a train out there after all this. You can, you you know, you can take a two hundred dollar cab like everybody else." We look at our workforce the same way. We 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 have sort of had all these folks who either grew up and their parents were in unions, or they went to trade school, or they worked as apprentices or whatever it might have been in all those places you talked about—electricians, plumbers, HVAC, all these different things, carpentry, construction, and then we just kind of left it behind. And, and you know, you look at how many, you look at the top 10 most lucrative college majors if you can afford to go to college, right? Or if you've been told you can afford to go to college because you have all of these loans that are available, but then it turns out 89% of people or something like that will never actually pay them back. It's it's, it's this fascinating like pyramid scheme we've walked ourselves into. where now like, we have to do all of this work and we are going to have a very difficult time doing it because we're very much behind the eight ball in the on the people front, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know why we do it. That's a further like sociological, anthropological question, I guess. But let's get a little more practical today. So we did this conversation with a gentleman named John Semmelhack, who's a uh, runs an HVAC company in Virginia called the Comfort Squad. And I managed to magically convince him to replace the heat pump in my house. He's kind of the showman of the whole thing. And then his partner comes and, you know, assesses the whole thing and says, uh, you know, this is where we're going to do everything when it's time to do the work. And I had this conversation with his partner. I have a difficult time not getting into it with him. I'm, you know, about these things because I want to know how my house works, but also just obviously because I care. And it was fascinating talking to him because he, you know, makes these interesting points. Like, yeah, hey, listen, it's hard to convince somebody that already isn't already inclined to do so, to spend their career under a house, essentially, you know? He's like, that's not one of those things like, it's got to be a lot of money, or it's got to be a lot of security, or this and that to, to convince somebody, because that's kind of like a trait you have or a trait you don't. You can like stomach blood and be a doctor, or you or you can't, and that's great. And there's other ways to serve the medical profession, but you know, no one can convince you like, nah, it's fine, blood's fine, you're going to be okay. Or teeth or whatever. And that was interesting to me because, again, that's not something like you can totally fix. But it does seem like there's so many people that would appreciate knowing how much money you can make doing this. So the security of the work in the sense that you're probably always going to have a job with everything we've got to do. But it's more complicated than that. So let's get practical with it for a moment. Imagine you, Emily, need an electrician and you call, you find a reputable one from a friend or Angie's list whatever Angie's list calls itself now whatever it might be and you call them and they're like yeah no we do that work that's super great i will call you in 2024 why are they booked till 2024 what's the first reason why
1: i believe it's called Angie now just A N G G I i think
0: you're right i think it's A N G I right no you're right you're 100% correct
1: i feel like you you just kind of laid out a, a lot of things that i could respond to but just to get to your to your question directly um, they're booked till 2024 because they just don't have enough workers to to take on a lot of projects. And there's a lot of demand for electricians from just kind of regular house maintenance to, you know, there's a lot of new construction happening in, in certainly a lot of communities around the country. And then there's new kind of added demand from uh, electrification projects in, in some places.
0: So why wouldn't they have enough workers? What are some of the reasons behind that that you kind of figured out through all your research there? Because it's easy to hear all this anecdotal like, I can't find an electrician, I can't find one. What are the really totally. systemic reasons?
1: You kind of alluded to a few of them um, as you were you were talking a minute ago, but I think there's like a couple of things going on. I think there's one that we've really shifted in the U.S to really valuing four-year colleges and and kind of pushing all of our students across high schools around the US to apply to a four-year school and go get some kind of professional degree. Whereas like we used to offer vocational education in high schools, kids used to have the option to learn construction skills in high school, potentially qualify for some kind of apprenticeship program or pre-apprenticeship program right out of high school. And there used to just be a lot more infrastructure for people to be exposed to these careers and kind of funneled into them. And along with that, there's the kind of cultural or what you brought up about how, you know, you have to kind of want to be willing to get dirty and spend your day in an attic or under a house. I think that one thing that I heard in, in my reporting is is this idea that people might be sort of lured into like tech jobs because they're flashy and they pay well and there's this sort of like lack of understanding that a job as an electrician can also pay six figures and can, you know, potentially provide a lot more independence than a job working for Facebook or Google or something. You can make your own hours, you can own your own business, that sort of thing. So yeah, there's sort of like this lack of of information out there about what these careers are like and how much money people can make. And it's unfortunate, I think. I think, you know, another interesting idea that came up in my reporting was the folks who I spoke to who were electricians, one thing that they loved about the job was how hands-on it was and how they're spending all day like, you know, solving problems and working with people and I feel like, you know, in this modern world, so many of us kind of lament that we spend so much time alone on our computers. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that there really could be this sort of like salve of of the spirit to kind of get more people into these careers. But that's more of just my own sort of idea about it. No,
0: but it makes sense. I mean, I close my laptop at the end of the day. I'm like, there's no evidence that I did anything today. Like there's (laughs) (laughs) like, like... show me, as opposed to, you know, there's a house going up in my neighborhood, my kids and I drive by, and I'm like, look at all the different kinds of workers, and they're doing this, and you, over time, and you're like, there you go. And they're working with each other, and they're playing music, it seems great. Right, right. Talk to me about the state of trade schools. I know, I believe the infrastructure bill and the IRA both have a decent chunk of money for states to spin up more education and training programs, but like you said, we we have pushed college so much, turned out this is not going great for a thousand other reasons. But talk to me about the state of trade schools, because from reading your reporting, which was so comprehensive, it was really interesting because I've spent a lot of time over the past couple of years trying to understand why we're so short on nurses. And mm. part of the reason there is, and again, it's, it's a, a succession of bottlenecks, which are basically choices we've made, it is it is more lucrative, for example, one, but specifically for nursing schools, it's more lucrative to be a nurse than to be a nursing teacher. And so people can't find enough nursing teachers. And so nursing schools don't have staff, yada, yada, yada. So talk to me about, again, if that's applicable there, or what else is is going on, and and then we can get to how the new bills might affect that.
1: It's interesting. That was actually my way into this entire story is, um, so Grist, the publication that I work for, we used to have a reporter named Nate Johnson. He was a climate and environmental reporter for like a decade or more and um, decided a couple of years ago that he wanted to leave journalism to become an electrician because he was kind of called to the stuff that I was just talking about, to to doing something with his hands and to kind of contributing in a more tangible way to solving the climate change. Nate started taking classes at this community college in Oakland called Laney College to kind of get his electrical uh, certificate. This is kind of the only uh, school in the Bay Area that you can go to 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 take these kind of classes. And the school, about a year and a half into his program, this one teacher that was teaching like six classes at the program decided she was going to retire. And the school just could not find anyone to replace her. And suddenly it became this, like, thing where the students were like, will we even be able to finish this program? Like, is this thing going to collapse? The deans were not making any promises one way or the other. I spoke to the deans there, and they said kind of exactly what you just talked about, which is that in these kinds of professions, the folks can make a lot more working in the field than they can teaching. And, um... So, you know, an electrician in the field can make six figures and Laney College is offering, you know, 70,000 and their teachers union contract doesn't really allow them to offer more than that. And they also, you know, the dean also said, "I've, I've reached, I've emailed like every electrician in the Bay Area. I feel like I've, exhausted all resources. I actually spoke to several electricians who were like, oh yeah, I heard from Laney College. They asked me if I could teach. Right. Like, And and another thing she said was like, they're just so busy. Like they're so booked up. They don't, even if they wanted to kind of give back and, and teach some classes, they just don't have the time and they're not you know incentivized to do that. There's just so much work out there. That's just one part of it though. I think the idea that it's hard to find teachers is a, is a big deal, but I, I think that there's more... Behind that, in terms of how resource-strapped these schools are, that they're at a point where they're asking one teacher to teach six classes.
0: Yeah, that's wild. If I could interrupt there, I feel like half this show is just me doing what my children does, which is just going like, why, why, why? You mentioned the teachers' unions there, pro-union, I mean, like three of them. Why can't they pay them more? Why couldn't that school, for example offer more to overcome someone who's making six figures in the field and is like, I'm booked out two years. What are the holdups there that might be more endemic to the rest of the country?
1: I don't know if that's endemic to the rest of the country, but it's actually something I I don't fully understand. I did speak to the teachers union about this to just kind of confirm that that was the case, that they they weren't allowed to offer more. And it's just in this case, something about how their contract with the teachers union is structured, where teachers are in very kind of like set you know, salary tiers and the school just would not be allowed to sort of negotiate outside of that.
0: Who funds these schools? Are they independent or is it by the from the state? Like how do how do they work traditionally?
1: I believe in California it's a it's state funded. I think there's also federal funding.
0: You mentioned in your reporting that California has a whole new program, right? That they're spending a bunch of money to spin these sort of things up. Is that correct?
1: This sort of like landscape of of workforce development, I think, is a little bit confusing, even for me. And I've tried to navigate it. But California has like a workforce development board. And there are a lot of programs put out by them funneled into local organizations, funneled to unions to do various Kinds of like community engagement projects and bringing more people into their fields. I didn't really get a sense of what California is doing to help community colleges. That wasn't something that I was able to really get to the bottom of in this story. I mean, they're not like doing nothing. I just, I don't have a lot there.
0: Again, not to keep bringing it back to healthcare, but there are these massive deficiencies in both where you go, like, I mean, we all saw, and and then we got into this conversation of like, did someone die of COVID or? or with COVID because while all of COVID was going on, you know, pre-vaccines or when they were rolling out and everyone didn't have them yet, we had to remind ourselves that our regular healthcare system and, and the people involved in it in whatever way, whether you're a patient or a doctor, was ongoing. And so you had everyone not getting cancer treatments and things like that. So as you alluded to in the beginning, forget, all these new homes we have to build and all of this incredible work that uh, the IRA is going to unleash, people still need dishwashers fixed. People still need, you know, their homes rewired or or renovations or this and that. I don't know. It's interesting. So so when you say, you know, it's not that California is doing nothing. It's just that we need, we need exceptional efforts, I guess, to go above and beyond to take on everything we need to do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I think one thing that you kind of mentioned there is that, like, people are already going to need electricians for sort of just regular home maintenance, right? And I think that that one solution is to kind of make sure that whenever trades workers or electricians are going into a house for these sort of regular, like kind of maintenance type jobs, that they are thinking with electrification in mind, that they're talking to homeowners about kind of making their houses solar ready or electrification ready and kind of educating homeowners about like what's coming down the pipeline in terms of California's regulations and things like that, and I think this is one area that California is doing a lot on, which is just in order to do to get to that point, you need to actually educate the contractor workforce.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: This wasn't the the kind of main story of my most recent piece, but I've I've reported on this a bunch in the past, which is that a lot of the contractor workforce is still kind of you know stuck in the past. There's not a lot of there's still a lot of skepticism out there. I think about like heat pumps and about the the merits of electrification and how to even go about it. And so um, California has this program called the Tech Program, where they are enrolling contractors into these educational training programs and teaching them about electrification.
0: That might have been what I was thinking of.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. It's not actually geared at getting more people into the electrical field, but it is kind of looking at the issue of the people who are in the field and and kind of making sure that they know everything that's going on, um, all the innovation that's going on and all the kind of subsidies and incentives from the state that are available.
0: And again, if we go back to that first phone call, and I have experienced this myself and know so many people have, you might find an electrician who's more available and that you might be like, I want to put in a, a heat pump or a battery or something. And they'll probably, at this point, statistically be like, you shouldn't do that. You should just yeah. do gas, it's more reliable. But also, again, and this is the thing we always come back to with HVAC is, and I imagine ele- electricity <laughs> is a lot of this, is so many of these things are emergency calls, right? Your power's out, or this is broken, or a fuse blew, or your furnace went out, or whatever, and they go, yeah, I mean, if, even if they are like marginally convinced to put in a heat pump, it is not a small amount of work to switch those out and so they're going to be like it's zero degrees out or it's 105 out if you want air conditioning tomorrow you need to pick one of these gas furnaces and we can put it in because we've got the you know our distributor on on call and i imagine you know the electrifying side is is similar but it does seem like like you're saying the education really matters but it's two-sided right because we I mean, we've made a point to put in these articles we're we're doing rewiring America to say to people like, if you have an electrician coming out for literally anything, please ask them to put like a two forty under your stove, or please ask them to do this like while you have them, do have, take them through your list of things and and hopefully it's the same side on the electrician side, right? Which is, it can seem like they're trying to upsell you, but that's what we need to do. (laughs) You know, they should come prepared and be like, hey, by the way, did you know you can do these six things?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of focus on kind of how do you sell electrification, not only to the contractor, but to the homeowner. And it's going to continue to be very challenging. I think even if the contractor workforce was totally on board for the project, these projects are still really expensive. And and this isn't something that I covered in my piece, but I think it's going to be a big part of the story moving forward is even with all of these subsidies that we have now have, um, it's still going to be pretty big sticker shock, I think, for a lot of people who, who want to get this kind of work done. And I think we're going to need a lot more programs to kind of help people afford to make these changes or to kind of figure out ways to Batch electrify a bunch of homes. Yeah, it's
0: almost as like you wonder if a, a neighborhood or an apartment building or whatever, which you know obviously requires involving sometimes an HOA or a landlord or a co-op or whatever it might be, can say like, "Hey, listen, how do we how do we buy you out for six months?" You know, to like some electrician firm or HVAC company and say, "We're going to give you all this work," you know, "but these are the things we want to do." But again, it's hard because electricians are like, "I've already got a lot of work," you know, "I don't I don't necessarily." you know, need that incentive, much less to give you a a package deal. Um, So two other things that that stuck out to me that are interesting. And one is you mentioned there it seems like there's going to be a lot of retirees in the coming years. Was that right? It seemed something like 15, 20 percent of the workforce. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So along with sort of not having new people enter the field, the the contractor workforce is certainly aging out. um, And a, a good chunk is nearing retirement age
0: we just need more electricians straight up to do any of these things from wind turbines to solar to you know fixing your fixing the plug behind your fridge but is there an opportunity because some of the longer more experienced folks who might lean towards the more traditional way of doing things leaving is that almost like voters is it possible that more new blood should we be able to educate them and train them up and pay them maybe could turn the tide towards a workforce that is more Incentivized and likely to try to do this work. I don't know. I'm trying to find opportunities here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that's that's definitely possible. I think that the challenge again is like actually inspiring people to to want to go into these trades. Um, yeah. And I do think that like even though you know a lot of the existing workforce might not be enthusiastic about electrification, they do have just an immense amount of institutional knowledge. <laughs> that yeah. is valuable and it's certainly going to be a loss to have them aging out
0: they like to become teachers i don't know like it's it's a, right
1: yeah
0: you can be retired you don't have to teach six classes if you can find three friends it's like bring your most popular friend to vote type of thing interesting so i want to talk about that workforce though as it exists right now and again correct me where i'm wrong because numbers not my thing i believe you said 90 percent of the current uh, workforce is white something like only two percent identifies as female is that are those right on the either sides of that barbell
1: yeah uh, less than two percent are women that was like the most striking statistic i found on this entire story i just could not believe that it's, it's i mean wild. i figured
0: anecdotally it would be low but that is really shocking.
1: Yeah. One thing I was trying to explain earlier is I think a lot of the workforce development work, for lack of a better term, that is currently happening happening, and that will continue to happen happens at a very sort of like local level. There's kind of community organizations around the country that are kind of built to try to organize training opportunities and inform people about, you know, union apprenticeship opportunities and things like that. Some of those organizations that I spoke with, they really see the task of kind of getting more people into the field as one that's entirely about diversity and opportunity for people who have historically not been a part of these sure. trades. So to them, it's it's really about making sure that, as money comes out from the IRA and the infrastructure law, that we're making sure that there's equitable sort of access to the jobs created and that people who have historically not known how to get into these fields or or not known that they could can, can do that. There's a pent-up sort of workforce there.
0: Has it always been 90% white? I keep coming back to, you know, it's, it's wild how folks have been walking around and, and you'll see these news headlines. It's like, Low unemployment workforce, this and this, and, you know, but at the same time, where are the service jobs? And you go, well, you know, a ton of boomers retired in the past few years, a ton of boomers died in the past few years from COVID. And we've effectively turned off immigration. And it makes me wonder, like, how much are we shooting ourselves in the foot? I mean, I know we're shooting ourselves in the foot by effectively closing the borders as much as we can. But I wonder how much that could affect improving this workforce if we're able to find some way to spin up these schools and, you know, and these opportunities and find ways to convince people to, to do these lucrative jobs. I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to find like where where can we find these workers?
1: I think that there are plenty of people in the US who would who would want these jobs if they knew about them and they knew how to get into them. There's one argument, one person I spoke with who is a very kind of union labor advocate mm-hmm. feels very strongly that part of the problem is that um, the way that we've sort of devalued unions in this country and feels that if there were strong labor standards attached to electrification subsidies that we would, you know, that the unions would kind of experience more demand. They would be able to bring more people into apprenticeship programs because those programs actually don't seem to kind of suffer from the same funding or staffing challenges that community colleges and other kinds of trade schools have. They they have such a proven track record of, of training people and, and kind of placing them in jobs. But the problem, at least for electrification is that unions aren't really, um, it's very hard for them to compete in that field. So there's this idea that strengthening unions and, you know, giving them more power on a local level could create new sort of funnels to get people who historically, like, weren't able to get into unions um, into those kinds of apprenticeship programs.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, unions have just gotten their ass kicked so much in the past 30 plus years on, on so many fronts. But so what is the state of the union workforce when it comes to electricians now and labor standards? I mean, obviously, you're saying like, we could do so much more to strengthen those and, and to strengthen the pay around them and, and and all of that. But I guess what is the status? Is it I don't have any idea, to tell you the truth?
1: Yeah, it's I think it's really different in different places. So For example, I spoke to the head of the local electricians union in Rhode Island, and there they have laws that basically require all rooftop solar installations have to be union labor. The unions have like a total lock on the rooftop solar market in that part of the country. But that's like so different state by state. In California... It's not like that at all. None of the residential work is done by union workers pretty much unless it's like a, you know, big multifamily building. It's much more sort of independent contractors. And yeah. there's different perspectives I think on <laughs> whether that work should be unionized or not. I think some people think that independent contractors, you know, are notorious for kind of taking advantage of workers, not paying them enough, not giving them health insurance, and I'm sure that is true, but I'm sure there are also a lot of outliers who who do do those things.
0: Yeah there's nuance to it, which is usually the applicable scenario. So after all of this sort of coverage, what do you feel like are some of the either solutions that exist in all of these different versions across 50 states and so many localities and areas like the Bay and, and not um, at every level here from from the marketing just to, you know it's like you know advertising any business you make people aware of it and then you make them actually interested in it and then you really sell them on it like are there any successful examples of just making people aware that this is something that they can do and that the work and lifestyle benefits are much better than they probably imagined because we've done such a poor job and then are there any examples again further down that funnel of okay educating okay training hiring, et cetera, et cetera. Because again, you know, when I talked to John's partner, he was like, look, yeah, I could train people. I would do that. He's like, but then I'm going to pay him to train and they're probably going to leave and go to another job. And I've spent that money. He's like, it's, I don't know what the answer is. And I, that's tough. So again, I'm looking for any other solutions that you feel like, or maybe you've dreamed up yourself (laughs) through all this that we can start to work on.
1: Just jumping off the example you just gave, I think one thing folks that I spoke with for my story mentioned was there is money in the Inflation Reduction Act for state energy offices to come up with their own programs for workforce development. And and one suggestion was a program where contractors like John would get paid to train people. It basically is costing him money to take someone on as a trainee and with no guarantee that they're going to stick around. And you're saying this wouldn't
0: be money out of his pocket.
1: Exactly, exactly. Okay. So that's that's one idea. I think there are also, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's most of the money in that legislation is has labor standards attached to it, but it's still kind of unclear how that's going to be implemented. And there are a lot of ideas out there about how various kind of federal agencies that are going to be distributing that money can clarify those provisions and kind of make sure that states are taking advantage of them to, you know, build up their workforce. Um, You know, at a national level, I, I don't know, you know, the only sort of successful model for kind of awareness building that I can think of is army recruitment. I kind of have this dream that, you know, maybe the U.S. could develop some kind of advertising campaign around, you know, becoming an electrician to save the planet. I really think that something like that could be effective if it was kind of executed at the scale of, of our Army recruitment sure. efforts. And I, I think that could certainly happen at the at the state level or local level as well. Another thing that I kind of realized in this reporting is that a lot of newer companies, so solar companies and kind of startups that are focused on electrification are, Making workforce development like part of their mission. There's Block Power that
0: yeah, they're awesome
1: focuses on electrification. They have a huge workforce development program in New York City that they've implemented, kind of with funding. I think from the city. I spoke to this group called Grid uh, Grid Alternatives. That's a solar installation company, and they have a workforce training element. And so, yeah, a lot of the sort of entrepreneurs in the space are kind of taking it on as part of their mission of like, mm. hey. There, there clearly aren't enough people in these fields, and and we can be part of that solution.
0: It seems like like everything here, like it's it's got to be the kitchen sink approach, right? So whether it's like you said, block power and and folks like that, or um, you know, independent groups like uh, John's at Comfort Squad, or you know, and again, there's a bunch of these companies, and we'll keep putting them in the show notes. Uh, Sealed is another one that it's on the consumer side, but it says, hey, here's all the things you can do. So, and here's who the contractors you can connect with. But if they make a part of it, I've been trying to get uh, the two women who started, I think it's called Charger Help. They are basically like, yeah, half the EV chargers in the US, like one, we don't have enough. And two, the ones we do have don't work. And everyone's really annoyed about it. So we're going to Train up and employ this huge workforce of people who that's that's what they do because it's got to be better and it's like, well, you're gonna have to train them, so i' I'll, I'll take every version of it, but yeah, that's my goals. just ha, ha, where where is it working? How can we support that and how can we emulate it in more places? obviously knowing that like it is more complicated than we have to do this because that's cheating like <laughs> that's not gonna get us anywhere. yeah, interesting, interesting. If you were to cover this again in a in a few years where do you see sort of the trends going with the retirements with less than 2% of women with, I guess, all this money that's that's coming in in a thousand different ways on the consumer side and and some on the training side? Where do you feel like there's gonna actually be measurable change, or do you?
1: Oh, you're asking me to predict the future.
0: <laughs> Correct, you're
1: welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, gosh, I think it's really hard to say, especially in terms of the the demographic stuff, I would like to say, yeah, we'll see more women and we'll see more people of color in these jobs. Um, I think we will. I think like there are enough programs and people out there really focused on that and focused on this moment that there's all of this opportunity, there's all of this funding for these things that there hasn't been enough funding for for years for energy efficiency electrification, weatherization, there's a lot of people focused on making sure that those opportunities benefit people who have not benefited in the past. And so I, I feel optimistic that that we will see, like, kind of a demographic change in the field. What I feel less certain about is how many homes are we going to electrify, uh, how big, you know, will will we actually build up the field? Will we get more people to go into these kinds of jobs? Will there be some kind of major backlash because people are either getting bad installations or they're getting sticker shock? As people kind of realize how complicated a lot of these like re- renovation projects can be, I think it yeah. it could, you know, potentially bring some backlash. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's There's sort of a lot of different that I'll be following.
0: It's a complicated one. I mean, we got to press a lot of different buttons at once, but it's one thing to say, like, we have to do this. It's great that there's all this money involved, so there's going to be consumer demand at at the same time. Like, well, we don't necessarily need that much consumer demand because they're already so busy, but hopefully that will push more things, and maybe there will be more... For profit college is an entirely different conversation, but maybe there will be more entrepreneurs who are focused exclusively on going, like, well, fuck it. Let me, how do I find the either the incentives as they're programmed or and written or the loopholes in some of this legislation? What's the electricity, state electricity offices you were mentioning before? Power something?
1: Oh, I was saying that um, there's money in the Inflation Reduction Act for state energy offices to kind state of energy offices, workforce. great,
0: The words. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Either way, it would be nice to see entrepreneurs go like, well, can I start a school? Can I overpay some electrician and take him off the workforce for a while? You know, if that's what it takes and then make that sort of self-reinforcing. Like, I don't know, but clearly we need, you know, more out of the box ideas that can then be replicated in, in more places to really address so many of these bottlenecks. It's like the greatest marketing country in the world. Like how do we not have the Uncle Sam type of thing or the Nike or whatever it is to, uh, you know, to to attract folks to kind of do this work for, for whatever reason. Like, you want to get into it mon- in for the money? Great. Don't care. You want to get into it because you want to do a green, meaningful job? Great. Have at it. You know, it's like we just need the work done either way.
1: Yeah. And, you know, actually, one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that I had sort of uh, very casual conversations with some folks who work in education, kind of throughout reporting on this that that weren't didn't really make it into the story. But I think that we are starting to see at like the high school level, um, guidance counselors and sort of people in that that field, sure, like coming to coming back to the trades and kind of seeing like that those are good options for their students as well. So I, I do feel optimistic about that.
0: And I understand that that's complicated. I was very lucky to go to college, not come out with a ton of debt. I had an incredible experience. It shaped me. But it is 100 percent not for everyone for a thousand different reasons. Much of that is affordability and whether you can ever pay these things back. You know, whether student loan cancellations actually happen, like who that might be changing right now while we're on the phone. I have no idea, you know that's <laughs> but but that's sort of the band-aid. It's complicated, but I understand why it's like it's wonderful we're empowering guidance counselors and, and teachers and if we can turn shop classes back on, you know, all these different things. But I also know seeing, you know, having kids in school who are who are very privileged and probably going to be able to get to do what they want. But to say to a parent, hey, maybe college isn't for your kid. Maybe they could do this because they're interested in this. Or actually there's more money there because we have now trained a generation of parents to think like, that's what my kids are supposed to do because that's the way for them to succeed. It's a complicated conversation.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, and and I, I think that's where something like a, you know, marketing campaign can sure. come in and really change the perception of these jobs and how you know valuable they are to society.
0: I had this brief conversation with a great reporter for Bloomberg, Akshat Rothi. I don't know, a year ago or something like that, where we realized like, hey, this whole, if we need to decarbonize by this amount of time or get to zero, it's it's basically both of our lifetimes. And you go like, oh, this is the work of my lifetime. And you want to give guidance counselors like a flashcard they can show parents to go like, Look, college can be incredible, but here's how much it's gonna cost and how long it's gonna take to pay off, if it pays off. And here's the jobs they could possibly do depending on how they do and what the most lucrative majors are, all that shit. And here's what trade school looks like. There's not gonna be a reduction in demand for electricians for the rest of our lives. And here's how much they can make off the bat. And here's the union work that's involved in this and this. And just show people the math. And again, that's not going to change emotions. But that's a big argument for a lot of folks who are struggling to pay the bills. Or parents, again, my generation, are straddled with that debt. And they're like, now my kid's going to have that too? You know, you, How can we simplify that and make that as clear as possible with also, of course, the fancy marketing to go along with it? So one
1: of the contractors who I spoke to for my story, who's sort of featured in the story, this guy, uh, born and raised. He emigrated from Guatemala when he was like a teenager and his dad was a contractor and he kind of started out helping his dad out in the field and ended up just kind of over the summer in high school working for an electrician and he it wasn't like he he saw it as his life calling or anything but he quickly saw how much money he could make and mm-hmm. When he graduated from high school, he just thought, well, this is like the fastest way I can become independent from my parents and I can kind of take care of myself. And so for him, that was a huge motivator. And now he owns his own business. He's really successful. So yeah, I think kind of like getting more stories out there like that, and just showing sure. you know that this is a path. This is a very viable path to yeah, adulthood.
0: extremely. We need you to do it. Like not only is it extremely viable, you but how can we support you and this and your training and this business? And would you like to become a teacher someday? Yeah, it's it is it is a two sided market that's very nuanced and and has some deficiencies. But man, the demand is there on both sides. What else am I missing? What questions have I have I missed, Emily? What have what have we not covered?
1: Ugh, I feel like we've we've really covered all of it. You know, I, I assume that your your listeners know what electrification means and, and sure. why we're doing it and, and why it's important. And that's sort of I think the background of this whole conversation um is this this big sort of shift that we're we're barely even at the beginning of, yeah. but yeah, I think yeah. I mean, we've states covered. states
0: haven't even rolled out their rebates for this stuff. You know, it's 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 right. very early, but the you know the tide is coming clearly. And one thing I actually got called on. I don't know if this is the conversation for it. That in doing this series with Rewiring America, we're going back to try to retrofit some of these. Is you know a lot of folks have been like, this is great, but I'm a renter, and you're not doing a good enough job describing the things that I can technically do. Like it's not good enough to say try to convince my landlord because it's not going to happen. So we're going to try to really think through that stuff a little more. I think that's a separate conversation because obviously the options are much more limited. But we're always going to advertise these yeah. things better to the consumer side because that's what we do. But if we can get the other side of that matched, then, you know, again, this whole train can move a little faster. And that really, like, when we talk about scale, that is the goal, right? To to decarbonize because we have to as quickly and as comprehensively as we can. And I can't remember what share of emissions uh, residential is. Obviously we have to do commercials well, but it's a lot. The answer is a lot and we have to do it. So we gotta figure that out however we can. So, well listen, Emily, I really appreciate it. Uh, I got a couple last questions I ask everybody if you got two minutes uh, to hang around here. When is the first time in your life, whether it's a reporter or doing yearbook or with a group of friends or whatever it might be, uh, where you felt you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful when was the first time you were like i moved the needle on something
1: so i I published a story in 2021 about a homeowner in new york state who was trying to electrify his home and that story really focused more on the contractor issue that we talked about earlier where you know he called 10 contractors most of them told him oh you don't want to why would you want a heat pump like you should just stick with gas and it kind of focused on that contractor education side of things in a place like New York which has a lot of you know money going to electrification and kind of state goals around this and the story really took off a lot of people read it i think a lot of people in New York state read it and i think i got a lot of feedback from people that you know, that it had just made the rounds sort of in, in the electrification community and in the policymaker community. And I don't know that it directly, you know, resulted in any specific actions, but I think that it really made a splash in, in terms of highlighting that problem and, and getting the state to kind of do something about it.
0: It's easy for these to be, at best, a collection of anecdotal experiences among folks, right? But journalism can do such a such justice to saying, take a step back and go like, wait, is is there more to this? Is it so anecdotal? And and then why? And why? And why? And it seems like through that piece and this piece, you know, you've done such a good job of going like, here's how the machine works or doesn't work for that sense. And, and the places where it is working. And we're obviously big fans of solutions journalism here and highlighting like, this is what's working in these places. And can it be replicated? Can it not? Well, here's what's unique and what's not. But that does matter. So that's awesome. And New York is doing a lot. But again, it's 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 complicated. It's not simple anywhere. I mean, the Northeast alone, it's easy to be like, get a heat pump. And they're like, we run on oil. <laughs> like That is not the easiest thing to replace. You think switching out a furnace is hard. Holy cow. I mean, what a complicated scenario. And it's easy to look at the West Coast and be like, well, nobody's got anything. You're starting from scratch. It's like, do you know what it's like to renovate a home and put ductwork in from scratch? Like, good good luck, you know? It's unique everywhere, but the... The impetus and the, the demand is there. Who is someone who has positively impacted your work in the past six months?
1: I'll give it two. So you mentioned Akhtar Rathi a minute ago. He's you know I I admire his work a lot. He's someone I look up to and um, have gotten to know a little bit over the years. And I just think he's a fantastic journalist. And I. I read everything he writes. So that's not just the past six months, but <laughs> definitely sure, you know. one of my inspirations. I also, I just started working with a new editor uh, at Grist. Uh, his name is Chuck and he's he's been a great influence as well.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Chuck. All right, Emily, last one. Uh, what is a book you've read this year in all of your free time that has either opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before or actually changed your thinking in some way? we got a whole list on Bookshop for folks to check out. Mm.
1: Well, I read this book that I actually, I wrote about for Grist. So listeners can can look it up if they want. It's called, I'm going to maybe butcher the name. I believe it's called Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. It's by this sociologist named Holly Jean Buck. She's someone who has focused a lot of her research and writing on carbon dioxide removal. Mm. I don't know how familiar your listeners might be with that sure. area if you've covered it before, but it's about, you know, not just stopping emissions, cutting emissions, but also actually finding ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere to, to draw it back down and either sequester it underground or in trees and, and other plants. So she wrote this book about basically the idea of net zero is that we're going to cut emissions to a certain point and then kind of balance out any remaining emissions with carbon removal. And right now, the conversations about getting there, there's a lot of debate about, I don't know if debate is the right word, but there's a question about how much fossil fuel use will we kind of permit in the future? And, you know, we hear Biden or Secretary Granholm saying things like, you know, we're gonna have oil and gas for years into the future. And meanwhile, we have groups like the International Energy Agency saying things like, you know, in order to get to net zero, we have to we can't
0: Full stop. extract any
1: more no. oil and gas. Yeah. And so yeah, there's this question of like, how much longer are we gonna use fossil fuels, how much natural gas kind of will exist in the future? And and the book is sort of about grappling with those questions and what it would actually mean to end fossil fuels. And it just it's, it's fascinating. And I definitely recommend her writing for anyone interested in these questions.
0: Yeah, it's a provocative question. It's one thing to say like, no more emissions. It's another to say like we gotta remove it all. It's another to take that big step back and go, okay, what does that really mean to effectively like undo the entire machine that has fueled, you know, the past 150 years. And is that possible? And if so, what will that actually require? Because like you said, when the IEA is like, no, you have to stop now. Like there's no more, like we can't do any more. Um, Those are the questions we have to ask. You know, it's not, and they're hard questions, obviously. There's a lot of folks involved on every side, but it's the same thing as, you know, looking at, uh, and I just spent 15 years in Los Angeles. It's the same thing as, you know, looking at the Colorado River situations like that and going, hey, we got to have a real talk about what it means to, live out west, because it's it can't be the version it's been for, for a while. Not a fun conversation for a lot of folks, but they're the ones we have to have going forward. So I love that. I will check that out. It'll go on the list. That is fantastic. Emily, you've been amazing and put up with so much today already. Where can our <laughs> listeners follow you online, uh, read your reporting all that
1: jazz well i actually have a bit of news so i you can follow me on emily pont on twitter you can look up my writing on grist and i this is actually my last week at grist um wow i, I probably should have mentioned this at the top of this st- no the, it's great the, it's fine that's
0: why i haven't recorded the intro the no let's do it
1: um, but I'm actually leaving to join Heat Map, the new Oh site no that shit. Just nice, awesome. Um, oh man,
0: there's some killers. I mean, look, love Grist. I mean, uh, the best. <laughs> but uh Heatmap looks awesome. I mean, just some incredible folks over there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm it's it was a hard decision. I'm very sad to be leaving Grist. Um, but I'm very excited. Heatmap is gonna be awesome. Your listeners should definitely subscribe. Uh yeah. I'll be starting there in a couple weeks.
0: Nice. Congratulations. Well, that, that's exciting. I mean, look, it's, you know, I have these young children. They're always like, everyone's like, what? I had to go do their career day. And I just tried not to drop F-bombs the entire time, which was a balance. But, you know, they ask these kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? And and the thing I try to help them understand is like, you're not going to do one thing and you're not going to work at one place. Like this isn't the 19th. You're not going to be on the same factory line forever. Like, Chris is incredible. And some people stay there for life. And yet, Journalism is filled with incredible folks who 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 got their start there or were there at some point and and learned some way. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we just need more of these things. So HeatMap is not like some competitor. It's like we do. We just need more, and we need more people trying to do it in a bunch of different ways. Whatever moves the needle on this stuff, right? I feel like that's the, totally. the ethos of this conversation. Well, congratulations! Yeah. That's really exciting. Thank um, you. And we'll we'll put Thanks. the link to HeatMap in there. And that's it. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time and all your exhaustive reporting on all this stuff. It's it's helpful.
1: Thanks so much, Quinn. Thanks for your interest in the story. And this is really fun.
0: And that's it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck, edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. Uh, You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter, and get notified about new pods at importantnotimportant.com where we've also got fantastic t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. I'm on Twitter if it's still around at Quinn Emmett or you can find us at importantnotimp. Uh, We are also on LinkedIn. You can search my name or the company there. Uh, You can always send me feedback, questions, guest suggestions, anything like that on Twitter or at questions at importantnotimportant.com That's it. Thanks for giving a shit.